Remember, this is the second time that uh, uh, we meet the Ten Commandments. The first time was in uh, Exodus chapter 20, um, when God first gave Israel the commandments. They then get repeated more or less exactly the same. Um, Forty years later to Israel, and then the rest of Deuteronomy is Moses' mature reflection, really, on God's law. But we're going to be looking at... Um, uh, the second commandment as it appears in Deuteronomy 5. Moses reminds them that God had said, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Let's pray for a moment. We've already prayed that you'd meet us, Lord. We pray that you'd meet us through our study of your word. Please, Lord, help us to understand what uh, your word meant to Israel, what your word means for us, and so be changed. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, they say that seeing is believing, don't they? I have to say, I'm not so sure. It seems to me uh, that images actually hide more than they reveal very often. Just to give you a, a, a for instance, um, uh, I looked up on the website, purely for this sermon you understand, um, I looked up on, on, uh, on a website um, to uh, look at a Russian introductory, uh, introduction agency. And uh, here is the speck of one of the beautiful Russian girls who uh, uh, you could meet, aged uh, 31, all her vital statistics there. No, she says she's a Christian. Um, all you uh, single young Christian men, before you go uh, rushing to uh, find her telephone number, let me just warn you that I am joyful, warm-hearted, loving, optimistic, balanced, and can also speak a little English, was virtually what was said of every other girl on uh, this particular website. Let me warn you as well that uh, uh, Russian websites, introduction agencies especially, have started to become notorious as places where people are conned. Seeing is not always uh, believing. Uh, the film uh, that's out at the moment, uh, One Hour Photo, for instance, um, makes that very, uh, very plain. Um, in that uh, film, if you go and see it, you'll find a, a lonely developer of photographs who becomes obsessed with the idyllic life of uh, one particular family as he experiences that family through their family photos. Sadly, it becomes very clear during the film 
that their real family life is very different from their photos. And he's horrified. Pictures are actually a deceptive medium. They seem to give a complete uh, set of information about a person, but it's an illusion. They actually only show us the surface. They actually only show us very often what we want people to see. They never show us depth. They never show us the things that really matter. At, at, at best, pictures are incomplete. At worst, actually, pictures lie. I think that's the reason why God gave the second commandment, this second command to Israel. He wants to tell them, first of all, that uh, images don't reveal God. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything on heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. Some people actually read that as a simple command not to worship other gods. But actually, I don't think that can be so, because in that form, it would be no more than a reiteration of the first commandment, wouldn't it? Where God has clearly said, you shall have no other gods before me. He's not just saying exactly the same thing a second time. No, this commandment is not actually immediately, directly about worshipping other gods. It's actually about trying to worship the true God in the wrong way. The history of Israel shows us very clearly that actually that does inevitably end up with us worshipping other gods, as we'll uh, see a little later. But this commandment, as it is given, is prohibiting the first step along that road. The first step along that road is actually trying to worship the true God by the use of images. The reason that doesn't work is actually just uh, found on the previous page in your Bibles. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses uh, 15 to 20. Let me read it to you. You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman or like an animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. When you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars and all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them, worshipping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as, to the, as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. Moses wants them to recall, you see, the, the great moment when God had given first the law to Israel up on Mount Sinai. And he says the people as a whole didn't see God. Actually, God chose to spoke, speak to them instead. Especially he chose to, to speak to them in written form. He personally carved out the first uh, 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 version of the Ten Commandments in stone. 
He told uh, Moses to write down a much fuller exposition of his law. They came to know God in a very special way through his word, says Moses. You saw no form when the Lord spoke. These verses actually in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy acknowledge that the sky and the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth and birds and animals and, um, and uh, uh, men and women especially all invite us to worship because they all speak of God's in, uh, God in glorious ways. But we human beings, you see, tend to, tend to misinterpret that speech. We don't see the glory of the Creator behind those things. We tend actually just to focus on the things themselves and start to worship them. It's not surprising uh, that uh, um, other religions and corruptions of uh, Christianity worship objects at all, says this passage. It's a natural thing to do in one sense. It's an enticing thing to do, as Moses puts it. It's not surprising that, um, as uh, Tim was pointing out, most branches of Buddhism encourage their disciples to focus on the statue of the Buddha. There is something about the image of a person at peace with himself in his world, which which is deeply attractive not surprising in our post-Christian society that people are turned to, to ancient forms of worship that venerate nature. Because nature is wonderful. Nature is a glorious thing. Nature is beautiful. But you see, to worship those things themselves is uh, uh, the same as if a, a teenager had um, the, a picture of Will Young up on their, on, on their um, bedroom wall and was offered to meet him and said, no, I'd rather actually just stare at his picture, please. We'd know something was very wrong with that uh, teenager's interest in that pop idol if he wasn't really interested in meeting the person. We've been offered the chance to meet God, to come close to him, to know his heart. He's revealed himself in the best way that he can this side of eternity. Put your photos of the wonders of nature back in their album, says Moses. Everybody's got those. What you've got is something uniquely special. You have got God speaking to you, interpreting his world to you, telling you how to live, most importantly, revealing his heart to you. How could you possibly go back to pictures? Images don't reveal God. Worse than that, though, images turn us away from God says the Bible very clearly. That's made very uh, plain in uh, one of the main things that happened to Moses when the Ten Commandments were first being given. It's recorded back in Exodus chapter 32, and uh, with my apologies for making you turn over pages, 
Turn with me back to Exodus 32. This is a very important incident. On page 91 in the Church Bibles. Moses is up on the mountain speaking to God. And we read, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and to get up and indulge in revelry. See, the truth is, as these um, uh, Israelites would find out, getting to know the real God is hard work. It takes time. Even the preparation for it takes time. Moses was away on that mountain for a long time talking to God. And quite naturally, the people wanted quick results. They got fed up with waiting for Moses to come back. And so uh, they say to Aaron in verse 1, Come, make us a God who will go before us. Almost better, it's better to translate that a God, not God's. I don't think the people at this point are consciously turning away from the God who delivered them from Egypt. We can see, uh, uh, for instance, when they make this golden calf, they say in verse 4, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. They want, you see, some straightforward, visible representation of God. That's what they want. Aaron bows to their demands and makes this golden calf. But it seems he especially wants to keep them on track, and he thinks he can. Verse 5, tomorrow, he says, there will be a festival to the Lord, that is, to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But you see, the people in reality have already abandoned the true God. It's absolutely clear in God's reaction. And when we uh, uh, abandon the real God, then our religious observances may stay the same. Verse 6, the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings, an exact description of orthodox worship for Israel. But in the end, humble daily obedience, obedience to God, will just disappear. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Or as it says just a few verses on, they were running wild. That's what happens. 
And Moses makes it absolutely clear in this incident that that disobedience, subtle as it may have seemed to be, has ruined everything. When he comes down from the mountain with his tablets of stone, verse 9, he smashes them. Verse 19, sorry, he smashes them. Moses approached the camp, saw the calf and the dancing. His anger burned. He threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. That's how they first broke the second commandment, you see. Returning uh, then to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5, we start to understand that a little bit more. We see why now God describes the making of an image as hating him. Did you notice that? I, the Lord, am a jealous God. I I punish those who hate me, he says in verse 9. See, it means we're not really interested in him. It means we really don't want to know the real God. It means we, we would rather have a superficial image which uh, um, uh, deceived us than know the real God. We claim it's loving him and adoring him and venerating him. But he says it's hating me. That's why almost everywhere else in the Bible when, when idols are mentioned... They're actually mentioned in the context of the full-blown worship of other gods because that's where it goes. Those who love God, listen to him. Those who love God, obey his commands. Those who love God, learn about him through his word. Because that is the chief means by which we develop a relationship with him. Verse 9 says God's a jealous God, doesn't it? And jealousy can be good and bad. I mean, jealousy is very bad if we are demanding an inappropriate commitment from uh, from someone. Jealousy on school playgrounds causes great harm. But jealousy can be good as well, can't it? The jealousy of a wife who finds that her husband's got a mistress is righteous jealousy. And that is the jealousy that God has. That is the fury that God has when he sees us turning away from him. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Well, you may say to me, what what about Christian art then? Is all representation of religious themes to be uh, avoided? Is that what the second commandment is about? I mean, there have been times when Christians have taught that, especially at the Reformation, a widespread destruction of Christian images. If you go into um, Ely Cathedral today, for instance, you'll find that the statues of the saints there have all had their, uh, uh, their faces or even their heads hacked off. That was done by zealous Protestant reformers who were fearful of those images, fearful that the people would be led astray. 
Because before the Reformation, in the medieval uh, period, there were um, uh, all sorts of pictorial representations in churches. Lots of vivid um, uh, pictures as well on the walls of churches. They were all whitewashed out on the vast majority of them after the Reformation. Was that right? See, Muslims would tell us so. They interpret the second commandment as forbidding all art. That's why uh, Muslim cultures have uh, developed beautiful forms of ornate Arabic script. But I think that misses misses the point of the command. I'm not sure that the second commandment is is forbidding all art. It is forbidding specifically bowing down to an image. It is forbidding venerating God through an image. We must not allow an image to define our understanding of God or to define our obedience to him. To be honest, I, I, I suspect that the reformers themselves were probably basically right in being deeply suspicious of the statues and pictures in churches of their day. Because there is little doubt, I think, that those images did draw people away from the true and living God. And some people protest that pictures were used in churches to help illiterate people to worship God, and therefore they were valuable. But actually, if you go to parts of the world where there is mass illiteracy today, missionaries find that actually telling the stories to people and helping them to remember them verbally is a far more effective way of communicating the truth about God to them than pictures. And more than that, actually they will tell you that when people get converted, they are desperate to learn to read. Because anyone who comes to know the true and living God will not want some picture or even some second-hand story for themselves. They will want to be able to read God's word for themselves because they know it brings them close to God. It seems to me that uh, um, uh, historically and in some church traditions today where pictures are extensively used for worship, they have basically given in to the same pressure that Aaron gave in to. They have accepted a quick fix, a substitute, which may be a little easier, but actually turns people away from the knowledge and worship of the true and living God. That doesn't mean to say that all, all art, even religious art, is forbidden by any means but it must not control our understanding of God, do you see? I mean, in in this church, for instance, we have Holman Hunt's uh, uh, famous picture of Jesus knocking at the door. I'm very happy that it's there. It's a good bit of art. It illustrates some interesting things. If, however, we had it uh, up here, eight foot high, six foot wide, And if uh, uh, all the messages that came from the front were expositions of this picture or or another picture, then I would say we are in great danger of substituting the real truth about the living God for inadequate half-representations, which in reality 
if our understanding of them is not controlled by God's word, can lead us astray. Truth is, you see, that images ultimately do tend to turn us away from God. Not turn us towards him. The truth that we have um, alluded to uh, several times already this morning is that God's word reveals God. It's amazing to think, isn't it? God's word reveals God. Just think about a few vibrations in the air that pass our ears and are gone in a moment reveal the living God to us. Even when they're put down in, uh, on paper, if you look at them objectively, they're only a series of squiggles and dots. They're a code. And yet, words uniquely enable, you see, one person to communicate with another. They reveal thoughts. They reveal feelings. They reveal motives. They reveal our inmost being in ways which, which nothing else can. I mean, we know it from experience. Young students know it. Do you know where uh, students are rapidly starting to spend as much on mobile phone conversations as they do on their rent? Young lovers know it. They love to spend hours talking to each other, talking into the night. Married couples know it. If they stop talking to one another, they drift apart. Even if they live in the same house, sleep in the same bed, they cease to know each other if they do not talk, if they do not communicate with those most ethereal of things, words. Uh, many years ago, a man called Marshall McLuhan wrote a book entitled The Medium is the Message. He suggested that the most important thing about a message is the way it is communicated to us. Well, God says that's true. Sending some of, someone a photo is very different from sending them a love letter. And God chose the love letter. That's why our church, you see here, is focused on God's Word and we make absolutely no apologies for it because to read God's Word is to receive a message from God's heart to ours. It's to have someone, uh, to, to have someone like me explain God's Word is like having someone introduce us to God himself. And that can be hard work. There is no doubt about that in, in church. Hard work for the teacher, first of all. Remember, Moses was up on the mountain for ages listening to God. And I have to say, in my experience, is people get impatient with that. I mean, everywhere I go, actually, I find uh, pastors say, saying to me, I can't get enough time alone with God. I can't get enough time to read his word, to study his word, to meditate on his word. I find my time be, being absorbed by good things, yes. But actually, when I get to the end of the week, I find I'm just cobbling together something to say on Sunday rather than really explaining God's word to people. 
I mean, just, just this week, to give you an example, a man older than myself was saying to me that he'd, he'd recently had a sabbatical. And he realised how much he needed time with God to feed God's flock. But he said within weeks of the end of his sabbatical, his resolution to spend more time with God had gone out of the window because people get impatient. Where has he gone? He's not looking after me as he should. I don't pay him to disappear into his study for half the week. But you see, a wise church will do just that. Because we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I praise God that this, this church understands that. And uh, for all of us as well, understanding um, uh, the real God requires work too. My, Michael Green used to say, sermonettes produce Christianettes. So true. Well, after all, when did you ever see a, a, a relationship that needed no work at all to maintain it? They just don't exist. I learned years ago that every time you see a really healthy marriage, dig below the surface a bit and you will find that that marriage has worked, the, the couple has had to work very hard at maintaining that marriage. Or why should our relationship with God be any different? Some things are hard to understand in God's Word. We have to work, about, work at it. Some things uh, from God's Word actually cut us to the quick and they need real moral courage and determination for us to understand them and, and obey them. It is hard work, isn't it? I actually quite commonly meet people who, who've, uh, who've come to this church actually or uh, who've had contact with people in this church, and they are, they are bowled over by the quality of the lives of people here. A real encouragement to me when I hear that. They say there is a, there's a rugged commitment to serve God. They say there's a real, real costly life. They say there's a sense of quiet joy, which despite the real struggles that people have, shines through. Here is a place they say, where lives are lived wholeheartedly for God. Did that happen naturally? No, it didn't. It happened because those people dedicated themselves to knowing and serving the living God, the real God. And most centrally they did it by seeking to understand God's word and to obey God's word. Sometimes at great personal cost. God's word reveals God. Because speaking is the way that persons interact and know each other. Actually, there is one image in the Bible. Jesus. Very interesting, actually, to think about it. 
when we've been saying so strongly that uh, God's word reveals what God. Colossians 1, chapter 15, for instance, says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Jesus uh, uh, himself, though, is also called God's word. In John chapter 1, verse 1. He is the one visible representation of God, which God approves of, but, says the New Testament, he, in some sense, he's still God's speech to us. He's still God's word. John, writing in his, uh, in his first letter, speaks very clearly about he, how he has seen Jesus, but then he says, I proclaim him to you. He doesn't say, here, I've drawn a little sketch of what he looked like. Because even here, that where there's the final, definitive representation of God to us, God's Son, Jesus, the way we know him is by reading about his life, by hearing him uh, reading the words that he spoke, by understanding his motives and his heart as he interacted with his disciples and marginalised people, by seeing the pine in his heart as he went to the cross and died for our sins. No photo will capture that. Now the living word is revealed to us in words too. So. So what about us? Well, I think... Uh, Deuteronomy tells us very, very clearly, we must choose. We must choose whether we worship God in his way or our own way. Knowing that if we worship him in our own way, we are worshipping another God. And that choice, says Deuteronomy 5, is actually not so easy. There are very ominous words in, uh, in chapter 5, verse 9, that we can't dwell on for long, but we must glance at. God is a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He's not saying he punishes innocent children there, because it's clearly uh, generations of those who hate him. No, he's saying but actually habits of worship run in families down through the generations. And sadly, children can pick up from their parents idolatrous habits. And when they think they're learning to worship the real God, are actually hating the real God. 
God's desire is not that they would be punished. No, God's desire is a thousandfold more that they should be loved and love him. He shows love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. But the reality is that making the choice can be hard. Because sometimes we are so steeped in habits, habits that go back for generations, we find it very difficult to break free. But break free we must. You know, there are men who would rather look at pornography than make love to their wives. There are women who would rather read Hello! magazine and immerse themselves in soap operas than engage in the reality of real relationships in the family. And there are millions of men and women in this world who would rather there was just some nice, simple image that they can venerate than engage in the real activity of knowing and serving the living God. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Perhaps you sense that uh, this is a moment of choice for you. Do I dare to know the real God? Or will I be satisfied with a distorted image? Perhaps you need to speak to God now. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to know you. And you'd give us the confidence that it is worth it because to know you is to live. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.